Most of us live as though we can plan our future, don't we? Most of us live as though we can plan our future. But here's the problem. We can't. It doesn't actually even have to be the chaos of Brexit to throw the next year into confusion. If we're honest, we're, we're far less in control of the way our lives will work out than, than we think. And we certainly can't plan, can we, how happy or how sad we're going to be? And we think we can. We try and plan the circumstances of our life, but you tell me for certain how you're going to feel at 4.30 this afternoon and then pull it off. Oh, we, can, we can choose to eat pies and sit in front of the telly or eat kale and join the gym. But in the end, healthy people get cancer. Smokers live frustratingly well into their 90s. Disease and death seems to come far more randomly than we feel safe to admit. We just can't plan our future for certain. Now, Matt started our service with Isaiah 25. Let me tell you about that future. It's a future that's certain because the God who made everything and rules everything promises it. Let, let me remind you, this was the future God promised to his people in Isaiah 25. He said, on this mountain, that, that's the, the mountain of the Lord, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the, the finest of wines. That's going to be a great party, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to be at that party? On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Do you think that will be a special place to be? A future like that forever? The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in this salvation, his salvation. See, that's the sort of promise these people at the, the wedding in Cana of, of Galilee were waiting for God to fulfill. The Lord had said he was going to bring in this this age of new blessing in the Old Testament, and they knew their Old Testaments, these Jews. A glorious, perfect creation where their, their failure, their disobedience, their sin would be forgiven forever. That they'd enjoy a new intimacy with him. A relationship of, of such love their hearts would sing in constant joy, but because there'd be no more death. Now, now we already know that Jesus has come to bring that future in, in John's Gospel. He's announced that he is the Lord. Uh, John 1.18, John told us in his, his trailer, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who himself is God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Here is God the Son come into his creation. And as Matt said, now between chapters 2 and 11, he's going to do signs, signs that point to who he is and what he's come to do. So that he can fulfill what John's gospel is about. You might remember, John's gospel is about this. John 20, 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what John wants you to do this morning, to look at these signs and to believe in Jesus. Jesus himself has promised one of his early followers, Nathaniel, that, that he's going to do wonderful signs. We saw that at the end of chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 51. 
Jesus then added, Very truly I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is referring back to a a dream that a great from the Old Testament, Jacob, had. It's a dream of heaven open for business. A dream of the, the very way into the presence of God. And you see what Jesus says in verse 51? It, you're going to go up on the Son of Man. It's a way he refers to himself. Jesus says, I'm the one who's going to lay open this glorious future, this wonderful, intimate relationship with God forever. And that's what he's going to show us in this wedding. Because here's the first thing we see that Jesus brings in the age of God's blessing. He brings in the age of God's blessing. We know something big is going to happen at this wedding because John says it's on the the third day and big things happen in the Bible on the third day. But but for Mary, she's just at a wedding with with her lad and and some of his mates and she hears there's a social disaster. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now you might have thought I've had enough of weddings for a while. (laughs) Those of you who don't know, my daughter got married last weekend. There was actually a glorious moment uh, while I was uh, finishing off this sermon, praying this morning, and uh, Boo was doing breakfast, and out of, out of the sitting room, the kids were playing something that involved cooking, and uh, Tom, who's six, we heard him say, oh, I'm going to need many more plates than this. There's loads more than 100 people coming. <laughs> Last week at the uh, wedding reception, there was a moment where Sue Hills and I were standing together, and someone came over and said, we've run out, we've run out of of lemonade with the pims, what should we do? And, and Sue Hills, in that way, that if you know her, she's incredibly calm, said, they all had a drink, it'll be fine, let's get on with it. That was it. We might be a little embarrassed, mightn't we, if we, we ran out of drink at a party. But in the Middle East, that meant you became a social outcast. It was the duty of the bridegroom to provide for this enormous wedding feast that would have involved the whole village for the whole week. And actually, he'd never be able to show his face again. It was not unknown for the bride's relatives to sue the bridegroom if if the wedding wasn't up to scratch. We don't know why Mary tells Jesus they've run out of wine. Perhaps she's passing on the gossip. (laughs) You'll never know what I've just heard. Perhaps perhaps she's come to rely on her oldest boy. It's likely that her husband Joseph has died by this stage. But for whatever reason she tells Jesus, his, his reply is a bit odd, isn't it? It's a bit business-like. Do you see it down in verse 4? Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Or literally, what is it to me, to you, woman? Now, I don't know if you've, you've ever called your wife woman. My suggestion, my, my pastoral advice is that you don't. <laughs> but, but the word here is not as blunt as that. But it, but it is a term of, of sort of formal address. It's not an, a term of endearment you'd use with your mum. It's a word you might use when, when you were telling someone off. You see, Jesus is saying, what are your problems compared to mine? What is your plan compared to mine? It, it's not my time yet. It seems harsh, doesn't it? But, it? but here's Mary with the one she's been told is the son of God on earth, and she thinks the biggest issue is they have no more wine. And, and no, says Jesus, I've got, I've got much bigger issues to deal with. It, it's not my hour yet. This is a slightly odd phrase. It's not my hour. It's going to be repeated in, in John's gospel again and again. 
until we get to John chapter 12 and verse 23. And Jesus will say, having said, it's not my hour, it's not my hour, he'll say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the very next thing he does is set off the night before his death on his road to the cross. You see, in John's gospel, Jesus' hour is when he dies. That's when his glory will be revealed. And this extraordinary miracle that he performs at this wedding, it's to show us why that is the hour of blessing. Look at verse 5 with me. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Maybe she's sowing a, a simple trust in her son. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 gallons of water. You see, the Old Testament law said that God's people had to wash themselves so that they would not be unclean. This wasn't about personal hygiene. This was ceremonial washing. The washing was to be a reminder to the people they weren't fit to come into the presence of a perfect and good and pure God. If you like, the washing was an outward ceremony to teach the people that they had an inward problem that their lives weren't fit for friendship, for relationship with God. And the size of these jars show the size of the problem, that they hold between them between 480 and 720 liters of water. That's a lot of washing. Now, now you might think it's a little harsh to say you are unclean. You shower before church on a Sunday. But, But that's what the Bible says. We are all unclean. We all have our dirty little secrets, things that we don't want other people to know. And we all know, you know this about me, don't you? You know that if you knew what I was like on the inside, if you could see that on the outside, then, then you wouldn't want to listen to me this morning. No amount of washing me can get rid of, of the reality of my uncleanness. You see, that's why these jars had to be so big. You just had to wash over and over and over and over and over again. Sadly, that's what many people think that, that God still wants us to do. Clean ourselves up on the outside so we're good enough for heaven. Go to enough religious rituals over and over again. Take the mass every week. Make your confession. Give to your gods. But, but none of those things can change us. In fact, the, the Old Testament law of washing wasn't supposed to be a solution to, to our inner uncleanness. It, it was supposed to show the Jews they couldn't cleanse themselves, that they needed God to do that. And that's what Jesus came to do. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. That's a lot of water. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And not just any wine. He he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheapest wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've said the best till now. Usually the plonk came out when your guests were past telling the difference. But, but not this. This is the best wine he's ever tasted. You see, here's the one, Jesus Christ, 
who's going to take people who need cleansing on the inside from their sinful, rebellious attitude to God, from, from the things that we deeply regret and the things we should regret, but we don't. And he's going to turn them into people who can enjoy God's abundant blessing forever. I think that's why these, these jars are filled to the brim. Jesus deals with all our need for cleansing, and he replaces it with an abundance of joyful celebration. You see, when Jesus gets to his hour, when he gets to the cross, he will be filled to the brim with our filth. All of our selfishness and anger poured into him. All the ways we've rejected God and hurt other people. The perfect Son of God will become filth for us so that we can be treated as clean once and for all, welcomed into, into God's family as though every day we've lived Jesus' perfectly pure life. And the result is that we have the certainty of looking forward to that feast in Isaiah 25, a feast beyond anything this world can offer in a, in a perfect new creation. That's why this is a sign that reveals Jesus' glory. It's not simply that only God can turn water into wine. No, it's because it points to the moment of his glory, the glory of the one and only who is full of grace and truth. Or as we saw a couple of weeks ago, he is full of love for you and faithfulness towards you. And so he washes you clean. Did you know the other time, the only other time actually in John's Gospel, Jesus addresses Mary directly and personally? He calls her woman again. It says he hangs on the cross in agony. John 19, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. It's in one way, Mary spoke more than she knew. When she said they have no wine, well, the people at the wedding didn't have the wine of the abundant blessing of God, the, the joy of the certainty of sins forgiven, the knowledge of a future with him and a feast he's prepared for them. They didn't have that. And Mary didn't know that it was going to cost her son everything to bring it about and it was going to cost her dearly too but one day she'd see the hour would come and she'd see the glory of her son the moment when Jesus was at his most beautiful the moment when he was butchered and bloodied and he hung there in love for us when he made us clean and the disciples show us the way to to react to and receive that love. Did you see them in verse 11? When Jesus, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. They trusted him. I don't think they understood everything about Jesus at this stage. We're going to see that in John's gospel. They probably just thought, amazing, water to wine. This guy, I'm going to follow him. Maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're quite new to Christian things and you're, you've got questions, but you think, this is amazing. I've got to find out more about him. We're running something called a Christianity Explore course starting October. There are leaflets at the back. Why not pick one up and come and find out more about him like these disciples do? But, but if you're like me and you've followed this Lord Jesus for many years, 
You've spent years finding out about him. Can I share with you the problem I have? Maybe this is your problem too. I think a lot of the time I live in the world of Mary. I live in the world of, we've run out of lemonade for the pims. The world where what I think, what I feel, is what really matters to the whole of creation. Where my little world is the world. Where, where what I can see is what's in front of me. As though paying the bills or getting the kids to school or fulfilling that deadline at work or making the, the budget balance. As though all those things are the thing. And life is about, well, me trying to make it as easy as possible for me. But, but Jesus says here, he says, look up from your life and look to me. Look to what I've come to do. I've come to bring in a new age. I've come to make you clean before God. I've come so you can be certain of his abundant blessing upon you so that you know your future is one where you will drink the wine of heaven with me. Where all the problems of this world, they're going to be swept away. I mean, how often do you dwell on the eternal blessings you have in Jesus Christ? I found myself, even this morning, knowing I was going to preach this, thinking, oh my goodness me, I better quickly dwell on the eternal blessings of Jesus Christ, because I don't usually do that, and I'm going to tell them to. You know, you know how often do you just pause for a moment and think, hmm, I wonder what I'll be doing in 10,000 years' time. Don't we regularly experience that thing where we, we get in a state about something coming up, we have a, a massive flap for a number of weeks or months, and then it happens, and it's just not nearly as bad as we thought it was going to be. And we think, well, why did I waste all that emotional energy? Well, I wonder if we'll feel like that about all of our life one day. When we're the Lord Jesus in that party. We think, well, why did I waste all that emotional energy about a life that I wasn't even in control of? Making plans for my happiness that I couldn't fulfill. Jesus says, lift your eyes from the mundane and see the greater things I've come to bring about. He's not saying the mundane doesn't matter. I'm not saying look to Jesus and all your problems will go away. But I am saying, wouldn't the right perspective about forever change today a little bit? Wouldn't knowing what all your tomorrows will be one day make tomorrow itself a little bit more bearable? Now, I can't change your perspective. I, can, I struggle to change my perspective. But that's what Jesus does here. He says, look, this is the new age of blessing. If you trust me, this is your today and your tomorrow and your forever. Don't worry about the wine. It is your forever because Jesus will swallow up death. That's what the events in Jerusalem a few days later show us. You see, if Jesus has come in to bring in this new age of blessing, he's also come to bring the intimacy of God's presence. The intimacy of God's presence. He has a few days in Capernaum. Uh, that's the town Jesus is going to make the base for his ministry. And, and then we read in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And that's actually what the whole Jewish nation did. Everyone went to Jerusalem at Passover time. You'll remember it was the day they celebrated God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. You remember those ten plagues that came on the Egyptians? The last plague, the death of the firstborn. In each Israelite household, a Passover lamb, a perfect lamb, was killed. And as the angel of death passed over, he saw the blood of the lamb daubed round the door. And he passed over their house 
and their sons lived. This was a, an enormous party in the life of the Jews. And look what happens, verse 14, at the, the heart, the center of this party. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. You see, the, the temple was the, the Jewish heart of worship. That's where you went to, to make your animal sacrifice that symbolically restored your relationship with God. It's where you went to pray, to hear God's word read and taught. And as it happens, a, a whole set of businesses had sprung up to make that easier. You see, if you traveled a long way, you didn't want to be taking your sheep or, or your, your cattle with you. It was much more convenient to buy one when you got there. Uh, the stalls had used to be a, a little away from the temple, but, but I accept one, someone had suggested, look, wouldn't it be much more convenient if we had the stalls just in the temple to sell the sacrificial animals? And let's bring in the money changers too, because we need to change our regular currency for temple currency to pay our temple tax. It'll be, it'll be so much easier, won't it? See, the practical had taken over from the spiritual. It's easy to do with a building like this. The practical to take over the spiritual, to, to worry about the budget, more than we worry about our worship. Well, well, Jesus, he doesn't want the practical to take over the spiritual. Verse 15. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, now often children's Bibles are this are this stage have, have a picture of a sort of psychotic Jesus with a whip in his hand, not, not hitting animals, but basically lashing people. I don't, I don't think that's quite what's going on. I mean, have you ever tried to move a cow without a stick? I once had to help my great uncle Henry show his cow in calf Hereford at the County Carlow show. I was sent around the back of the cow in the trailer to get it to go out. Um, I suggested Ford was the gear the beast selected. She preferred reverse, and I was pinned to the back of the trailer till Uncle Henry came with a big stick and the cow left the trailer. Now, you can't move cattle without a stick. Don't, but, but, but don't get me wrong, Jesus is angry. He's rightfully angry. He does turn over the tables. This temple was given by the Lord so his people could draw close to him, so they could enjoy relationship with him, so they could know him, but, but now it resembles Ikea on, on a busy Saturday. You see, Jesus is passionate that people will know God's presence. Now, the Old Testament said that would be the heart of God's king, the Messiah, when he came. That's that quote from Psalm 69 in, in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. It's a psalm about how God's king is persecuted by his own people because he's passionate the Lord would be honored among them. In fact, in the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi had foretold the Lord himself was going to come and he'd take the half-hearted temple worship that dominated the life of Israel and he'd reform it. But, but Jesus hasn't just come to, to clean up the old act. You see, worshipping God had become an economic system. It didn't need reforming. It needed removing. Jesus has come to bring a, a new intimacy with God, a permanent way into his presence. Now, that's what comes out of this interrogation that occurs with the, the religious authorities. Look, look at verse 18. 
The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, but you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. Remember? Important things happen on the third day in the Bible. Waters turn to wine. Dead messiahs come to life. You see, this, this new place of worship Jesus is bringing about, it's not a reformed temple. It's going to be a resurrected Jesus. Oh, we saw, didn't we, in John 1, verse 14, Jesus described as the Word who has become flesh and dwelt amongst us. Or literally, we saw it meant tabernacled amongst us. The tabernacle was what preceded the temple. It was the portable tent of worship that was the heart of God's people when they were wandering around in the desert. But, but now you don't need to go to a tent to worship God. You don't need to go to a building to worship God. You don't, you don't go to a, a temple to worship God. You go to his son, his living son. And Jesus is passionate that you'd be able to do that. You go to the Son, so that you can come to his Father as your Father. You go to the Son any time and in any place. The tabernacle went round at the heart of the people, but the amazing news is now that Jesus, the Son, by the power of his Spirit, comes to dwell in the hearts of his people. Now, he is passionate that you would know the intimate presence of God in your life, that you'd enjoy his Father's blessing, that you know his Father's love and security. It's a passion that doesn't just turn over tables. It's a passion that goes to a cross and gives up a life and then rises again and indwells your hearts so that you can draw close to God and know what Isaiah said in Isaiah 25. One day this will be the reality, the intimacy, the beauty of our relationship with God. Do you remember what he said? the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace. Your dirty little secrets will be gone. They are gone. But then you'll know them no more. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. That's why more important than, than our verdict on Jesus, actually, is, is his verdict on us. Did you see the two ways people respond to this? Look at verse 22. Here are the disciples. Here's one type of faith. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. We're going to go on a journey with these disciples through John's gospel. They're going to see sign after sign up to the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And the more they see, the, the more they're going to see the enormity of who Jesus is. And so in the end, by the end of John, their whole lives are going to be given to him. They're going to serve him and they're going to proclaim him and they're going to worship him with all they have. That, that's one response to what Jesus is, is saying here, what he's offering this, this king come to bring about this age of blessing and this intimate relationship with God. But, but then there's the crowd. Do you see them in verse 23? Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. It sounds so encouraging, doesn't it? 
But, but look at what Jesus knows about them. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He knows us inside out. He knows what is in you. He knows what your priorities are, and he knows what your pleasures are. He knows what your plans are. He knows what you are thinking about even now. And he knows the difference between a faith that is going to come to give its life to worship him and the belief of this, this crowd, which is more about, that's an amazing sign. I wonder what he can do for me. I'll have this Jesus in my life, sorting out my problems. So easy to do, isn't it? It's the difference between Jesus, the one who brings in the new age of God's blessing and draws us into an intimate relationship with God forever. In other words, the one who is at the heart of God's plans for the entire universe, who we all revolve around in glorious worship, enjoying what he brings to us, and my life with my priorities and my plans, and Jesus, whose job is to revolve around me, producing the signs and miracles I want to make me feel better. That's the difference between the disciples and this crowd. That's the difference we've got to grapple with. Which Jesus will we have? And the only way you'll come to have Jesus as the one who is at the heart, the center of your life, is to see that, that what he brings in is this enormous age of God's blessing. And that's what we're going to be enjoying forever. And to see there is nothing more precious than an intimate relationship with God enjoyed today and every day. That, that's what's going to change Jesus for you. And that won't change the circumstances of tomorrow. You'll still have to get up. The kids will still kick off. You'll still probably lose it with them. You'll walk to school feeling guilty, or to work feeling like you don't want to go there, or you'll get up aching, and again, it'll be a struggle to get out of bed because your body's about 300 years older than when you were born. It won't change the circumstances of tomorrow. But if you know that one day, all your tomorrows will be perfect in the beautiful presence of the God who loves you, or tomorrow might be a little easier to cope with.